Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and resulting in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Good morning, everyone. Hey, God bless you for being here at worship today. I, uh, I hope that God speaks to your heart. I hope he encourages you in those places where you need to be encouraged. And today we're going to be uh, looking at a story of Gideon. It's an against all odds kind of story. And everybody loves those, right? I mean, my little kids are no different they're little, not little anymore, 33 and 35. But when they were little, um, one of the things that I loved to do at bedtime was regale them with stories from the Bible. And I have to admit, I took a little poetic license and added a few little things to make it uh, relate to them a little better. And one, two of those stories were David and Goliath, against all odds story, and then the story of Gideon. And one of the things I did to make it interesting, I, I don't know how, if all of you are familiar with the story of Gideon, but there's a point where he and his meager little band of 300 people show up in the Midian camp, and they're really quiet before they attack. And what I decided to do was use an Elmer Fudd voice. Now, how, now I need to take a poll because I know there's a lot of young folks in the audience. How many of you actually know who Elmer Fudd is? Okay. All right, you'd like me to do that voice for you, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I, would, I would cave under pressure, I promise you. But I would, I would use an Elmer Fudd voice, and sometimes on purpose I would forget to do it. And the kids were like, Dad, you've got to use the Elmer Fudd voice. And so it was a way to keep it interesting for our kids. But, you know, this is a story of an amazing God who, against all odds, won a victory. And so we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6 today. And I wanted, to, I wanted to share with you a picture, first of all, because, you know, one of the things Gideon did was lay out a fleece, right? Okay, can you see that right there? Um, Gideon laid out a fleece, and I think in my young kids' minds, this is what they're thinking. <laughs> Lamb chop. Well, this actually happened the other day. One of our dogs left it out overnight, and it was a heavy dew. And I went out there and I, you know, I kind of thought, wouldn't it be cool if the ground was wet and the fleece was dry? And so I pick up little lamb chop and it's soaking wet. So that's what really happens normally in those situations. And so what God did was pretty amazing. But anyway, before we read the scripture, I think it's, it's great to kind of give us a, a context. You know, you don't spend every day in Judges, and it's something many of us revisit from time to time, but I think it's important to kind of just establish a little bit of context for us. First of all, authorship. Now, Judges doesn't open up saying so-and-so is writing to this group of people. There's no author mentioned, but Jewish tradition tells us that it was Samuel. It points to Samuel. And when Samuel would have written this, he was the last judge. When Samuel would have written this would have probably been early in Saul's kingship before David became king. 
And there are certain uh, passages in Judges that say, back in the days when there was no king in Israel. So it's definitely written from a time when there actually was a king. And so many people think that uh, Samuel actually wrote the book of Judges. Um, It lasted about 300 years, this period of the Judges. And, And when we think of Judges, we think about the judicial system and going before a judge at court. And that was part of it. But they were also a religious leader and a manager, uh, like government management. So they had a, a very broad role. And so for 300 years, these judges ruled in Israel. And so it really started after Joshua died, then began the period of the judges. And so this is the time in which this story takes place. And so there's a kind of a timeline of events that I want to walk through with you. First of all, Joshua is about to die, and so he calls all the nation of Israel together. And his, in his farewell speech, many of you know this, some of you have this plaque in your home or a picture in your home that says it. His famous line in his farewell speech is, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. And before that, he says to the people, choose you this day whom you will serve. And so Joshua, as he is about to leave the scene, he calls the people together at Shechem, and he reestablishes the covenant with them. And I love the way that Joshua does this. Because Joshua, first of all, says, um, we've got to renew the covenant because already in our midst, you are worshiping false gods. It's already happening. So we need to come back to covenant with God. And the people are, are behind him, and they say, oh, Joshua, we will, we will do that. We will come back to the Lord our God. And then Joshua uses a little psychology on him. He goes, no, you're not able to do that. And they're, they're like, yeah, yeah, we, we can do that. And so they commit to God there at Shechem. And, you know, Joshua says, now, if you don't come back to covenant with God and follow his ways and worship him only, there will be dire consequences God may wipe you out. And the people again affirmed, we will serve God. What's interesting about that is that sounded good on the surface, and for a little while it worked, but the bottom line was there was not true repentance. This was the beginning of not just a vicious cycle, but an actual downward spiral as the people of Israel began to do evil in the Lord's sight. God would bring discipline then they would have this time of of scarcity and oppression, and then they would cry out to God, and he would listen, and he would deliver them, and then it would wash, rinse, and repeat. It would start all over again, but it was a downward spiral. And so we see a nation that eventually goes off the rails. And um, what's also interesting about this story of Gideon as we read it is right before Gideon, there was a period of 40 years of peace, After another judge had brought victory in Israel, there was 40 years of peace. And then you have the seven years uh, in this story, and then you have another 40 years of peace. So you see this, this rhythm to it, where God restores them and things are good for a while, but they just cannot help themselves. Their hearts are wayward and rebellious. And so we're going to see that today. And I think, um, 
the biggest tragedy to me is that um, God works so hard to bring his people back to himself. He was relentless in that pursuit, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the first point I want to make as we read this passage is this was the worst of times. Now, those of you that are, you know, no literature, Charles Dickens in his, his book, A Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. In Israel, it would be, it was the worst of times, it was the worst of times. And we're going to look at that today. So let's read Judges chapter 6. We're going to look at uh, 1 through 16. And, and here's the deal is, there, this is so rich and it's such a big story. I can't do justice to it in one message. And so I, you're going to get a little bit of a trailer today, except for this part right here. You're just going to kind of see the highlight reel of some of the things that God does. So let's read Judges 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Here we go again. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you've not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. What I like to do is kind of unpack this worst of times scenario for you. And in this passage this morning, we see, first of all, that it was an age of apostasy. 
an age of apostasy. Now, apostasy is a theological term that means the voluntary and conscious abandonment or renunciation of a person's or nation's faith in God and his laws and covenant. So this wasn't just a a brief time of disobedience. This was a whole age of apostasy. Right after Joshua died, the people began disobeying God's sacrificial laws. When his generation passed away, they forsook the covenant established on Mount Sinai and reestablished at Shechem, and they descended into blatant immorality. They totally uh, appropriated the culture of their day. It resulted in evil practices of idolatry, worshiping the gods of the nations that they failed to drive out from the promised land. So if we look at this age of apostasy, I love what the, what, uh, the author does. It's first of all, in verse 1, if you look at it, he just generalizes it. We're taking a, a zoomed-out view, and basically he says that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then look in verse 10. It zooms in a bit. The prophet tells them, you are worshiping the God of the Amorites. Okay, so we went from general evil to now we're starting to see where we're going with this. It's, it's idol worship. And it's not just idol worship. It's idol worship of the, God of the gods of the Amorites, which was a whole pantheon of gods to choose from. And they were already worshiped in Israel when they moved in. So right there you see one of the things God told them to do when they came into the land was to drive out the nations. They didn't do that. They obeyed sometimes, they didn't obey all the time. And so these people were still there with their idol worship. And now we see, as the prophet warns them, it's because you're worshiping the God of the Amorites. Okay, well, let's zoom in a little further. Look at uh, verse 25 of chapter 6. This is a test for um, Gideon's obedience, but it does give us a little more clarity. In verse 26, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Oh, okay. So now we know specifically that this community in Israel worshiped two gods of the Amorites and probably more, but these were the two that were most detestable to God that he asked Gideon to tear down, Baal and Asherah. So these two gods often went side by side, almost like a husband and wife team. And the things that people did to worship them, uh, it just defies your logic if you think this person had a covenant with God that they would actually do this. There was prostitution. There was offering of children as sacrifices. There were all these things that the children of Israel began to do. And so you could see why God would want to call them out on this. And so uh, as we look at this, we see that God is going to judge them specifically for these two gods that they're worshiping. And I want to ask you, if God were to send a prophet to us today, and maybe he would say, okay, you're doing evil in my side, and then maybe he would tell us a little bit more clarity, but what in your life are those idols that maybe you, through culture, have appropriated and you are beginning to bow down to? So it's not just a time to look at them, it's a time to look at us as well. 
So we see, first of all, it was an age of apostasy. Secondly, it was a season of scarcity. It was sustained disobedience and idolatry that resulted in God withholding his hand of blessing as he warned them he would do. Now think about this. Seven years of bad luck. Have you ever had a season of your life that you felt like you were just in a time of bad luck? Seven years, and you, you think, when is it ever going to end? But you think about how it describes this. First of all, they had to abandon their cities and villages. And I, most of us have never had to do that. Um, we've never been in a situation where we've had to run away for our lives and go hide in caves and shelters and clefts of the rock. Not only that, but can you imagine a, a family taking their young kids and fleeing from their homes and going up into the mountains and trying to eke out an existence there and looking down at your fields and seeing this enemy come in and not only are they just ravaging the fields and taking it all for themselves, because they have plenty of livestock, they kill yours. So everything that you and your family have worked for is in jeopardy. You know, they move into your houses, they steal your stuff. And so you can imagine seven years of that uh, would just be heartbreaking for a family. I mean, think about, you know, trying to raise a family in that environment. And it's sad that it was their own doing, but nonetheless, we can empathize with these people. And you think about a husband and wife that wake up every day wondering how they're gonna feed their family. Or they go to bed every night wondering if this is their last and they're going to be attacked and killed. So this is a season of scarcity in the life of Israel, almost unlike any other. And then thirdly, we see that it was a formidable foe. You like my alliteration there? I worked really hard on this, so I hope you appreciate it. A formidable foe. Look at verse 1 and 3. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And then in verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. So you ask, who are these Midianites and these Amalekites? Well, um, this is interesting. Um, these are actually descendants of Abraham. So, you know, Israel's descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Well, the Midianites are descendants of Abraham through his wife Keturah, who he took after his wife Sarah died, and she had a son named Midian. And so this is actually kind of distant relatives that are attacking their own family. And maybe in Midian there was this sense that, you know, the children of Israel got Abraham's inheritance, so maybe they felt a little entitled, who knows? But that's who these people were. They were from the Gulf of Aquaba, which is the Red Sea. And so you think about it, that's like 700 miles from Israel. That's a long way to go. These were a nomadic people who so overwhelmed wherever they went, they were, they were likened to a, a, a swarm of locusts. So these people are not friendly people. And how many times, uh, how many of these people were there? If you look at chapter, um, chapter 8, verse 10, it says that there are 135,000. Now let's think about that for a minute. 
if you're doing the math, you know that eventually Gideon winds up with 300 people to defend Israel against 135,000. How do we know that? Because they killed 122,000 of them on the first day, and then they killed the rest, and you add it up, and it's 135,000. To give you a little context, D-Day, the Normandy invasion, 160,000 to 190,000 allied forces. Um, Desert Storm, I think it was 100,000 allied forces that went in. So this is a big group of people coming against a small community. So it's an overwhelming, formidable foe. You talk about being against all odds. And then on top of that, if it weren't already the worst of times, then now we have a hopeless hero. You know, heroes are not supposed to be hopeless, right? Heroes are supposed to be those people that if you pick at them long enough, they stand up to you and and they fight you. But that's not what we find here. Let's look at verse 11 through 15 again. Okay, so the angel of the Lord shows up. And it's obvious that Gideon doesn't know who he's dealing with yet. He will, but he doesn't know yet. He says, pardon me, my Lord. And in the NIV, that's a little L. It's not the big L, which means Yahweh. Okay, we'll get to that. He says that later. But he says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Have you ever asked that question? I sure have. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? That is a fair question to ask, Gideon. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? You see, as Melinda said, the people had forgotten. They forgot. But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. What is he saying? It's God's fault. What's happened to us? God turned away from us, not we turned away from God. So obviously, Gideon is not understanding, uh, and, he's, and he's a hopeless hero. God has abandoned us and given us over. The battle's already lost. And then he goes on to say, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of the Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Now, Gideon starts to argue with the stranger. He, again, he doesn't know who it is, but he's polite about it. Pardon me, my Lord. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Man, you have the wrong guy. You, I am I'm the lowest on the totem pole here, for sure. And he says, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Friend, that's, that's a hopeless hero. He has so lost sight of the possibility of God using him that he feels like he's a nobody. He's so beaten down that he didn't even realize who he was talking to. Who was this stranger that had accosted him on the road? This stranger was none other than the angel of the Lord. Now, all of us can wrap our minds around the fact that The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, distinct from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but yet one. God the Son, in the incarnation, 
came down and made his dwelling among us. He put on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. But what a lot of people don't know is that this wasn't the first time that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, visited mankind. And here we see that this is a theophany. This is the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity, appearing in bodily form. And not only had he done it here, if we look at Judges 2, we're going to see that he also came another time. Let's look back at at, uh, Judges 2. Look at verse 1. The angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people in this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochum. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Okay, so again, this is the beginning right after Joshua had passed from the scene. The angel of the Lord had appeared to the people and called them out. And they cried out to him and wept and offered sacrifices, but it wasn't real. They went right back to their rebellion. And so here again, we see that the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, not the whole group, but to Gideon to begin to do his work of bringing them back to the covenant. So that's the worst of times. Look at it. An age of apostasy, a season of scarcity, a formidable foe, a hopeless hero. Have you had any of those in your life? When you look at that, have you, have you had a season of scarcity? Maybe you're a hopeless hero today, or maybe you have a formidable foe in your life, an addiction or a relationship that you need God to show up. What I love about this is that's not the end of the story. That was, it was the worst of times, but we're about to see a total triumph. Unquestionable total triumph. Let's look at, um, um, well, let me, let me go ahead and, and set that up a little bit. In that total triumph, it's important to know that it, the victory wasn't won when Gideon and his army stood there before 135,000 dead warriors. That's not when the battle was won. When was the battle won? When God showed up. When the angel of the Lord appeared, that's when the victory was won. Now he just needed to get everybody on board. And so the first thing he did was he called. God took the initiative to restore his people to himself. He used divine discipline. He used the prophet. He used the second person of the Trinity himself to begin to call his people back to himself. Friends, we have a pursuing God. Thank goodness, man. Not only did he call 
but he chose. God chose a leader. Gideon was who God said he was, not who he perceived himself to be. Think about that for a minute. Gideon was who God declared him to be, not who he saw himself to be. And maybe that in itself is a message that you need to hear today. Maybe you're struggling with your identity in Christ, and we'll get to that application later, but maybe that is a word for you. God chose you. He chose Gideon. And he saw things in Gideon that Gideon was incapable of seeing himself because he was so beaten down by scarcity and hopelessness. And then, in this total triumph, the next thing that the angel of the Lord did was he consecrated. The path to victory started with complete obedience. Let's look together at uh, chapter 6, verse 17. Through 27. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I've come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Now this, this talks about the patience of God, because listen what Gideon has to do. He didn't, he didn't have a fast food store to go to He couldn't go to fresh and pick up something really quickly. It said he went inside, prepared a young goat, so he had to kill it and dress it and prepare it, cook it. And from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. It takes a while to bake bread. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. So God waited. God knew that Gideon needed time to process who he was actually dealing with. And I love that about God, is that he he is so patient with people. He's definitely patient with me. Now, I love what the angel of the Lord did, because what's Gideon expecting? He's expecting the angel of the Lord to sit down there on the rock and eat the food that he's prepared and, and thank him politely and tell him how good it was. But this is what happened. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized, this is so important here, When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord, through a voice, the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. Friends, the patience of God brought about this encounter with Gideon where Gideon's eyes, spiritual eyes were open and he realized, I'm not just dealing with some stranger here. I have had a face-to-face encounter with the Lord and I've lived to tell about it. I want to tell you this, that God encounters his people. 
God draws near to us. He wants to reveal himself to us. And what it required was for Gideon to be on a path of obedience. And that was the first step, was um, God consecrating what Gideon had to offer. And isn't that what our lives are about? God consecrates what we have to offer. If we offer our lives on the altar to him, he consecrates it and uses it whether we're perfect or not. None of us are perfect, and so we need God to consecrate our lives and use us, and that's what he did with Gideon's offering, and it caused Gideon to worship him and to have a new name for him, the Lord is peace. Now think about the significance of that. In a season of scarcity, in an age of apostasy, with a formidable foe that's about to totally overwhelm them, Gideon, after encountering God, has a change of perspective, and he says, the Lord is peace. Reminds me of some passages in the New Testament where Jesus said, peace, be still. Where Paul said, "Um, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. His encounter with the angel of the Lord and him offering something and God consecrated it caused him to be in a state where he worshiped God and he felt the shalom of God. So not only did God call and choose and consecrate, but then he empowered Gideon. Gideon wasn't alone. God was with him, and he placed his spirit upon him. Friends, when God calls you and consecrates you, he empowers you to do what it is that he wants you to do. He has promised his spirit to those who trust in Christ as their Savior. He has promised that he would never leave us or forsake us, and he will empower us for the task that he calls us to. And not only did he empower Gideon, he affirmed Gideon. Now, Gideon had, even though he had experienced the Lord and seen the fire just eat up his offering and and realized that he had encountered God, Gideon was, was obeying, but he still needed assurance. So what did Gideon do? He said, Lord, I want to do a fleece test. And it, it wasn't that little... Uh, lamb chop that I showed you, it would have been, they would have sheared a sheep or a goat, a rather large animal, and it would have been a pretty large fleece. And so he says, okay, God, I I know what you've called me to do. I'm willing, but I just need need a little more affirmation here. So he says, if I lay this fleece out on the threshing floor, um, if, if you will make that fleece wet and the ground around it dry, which, as I told you, it didn't happen with my fleece, so it wouldn't happen with his normally. And so God was patient again. He did it, and Gideon was like, thank you, Lord, I really needed that, but could we try this one more time? (laughs) Have you ever been that way in your prayer life? God, I think you affirmed it. I'm pretty sure I know what you want me to do, but can you help me be really, really, really sure? And that's what Gideon's doing, is wanting to be really, really, really sure. So he goes out again, and he reverses the test, and God answers him there. And I think it's important for us to to realize that part of following Christ, because 
because we struggle with our faith, because we struggle with obedience, you know, God will allow us times to seek his assurance. It's okay. There have been times in my life where I've laid out a fleece, and I don't think necessarily it was a lack of faith. I just needed to make really, really, really sure that I heard God right. And I think that's Gideon's case, because you think about it, God is asking him to go against 135,000 seasoned, well-armed, battle-hardened troops. And so Gideon needs that assurance, and God affirmed him. But then, with all of this path to triumph, something that none of us really like to talk about, but it's a part of our Christian life, testing. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you know that even if you're following God, you will be tested. And there's different tests in your life, and this one was a test of obedience and resolve. Did Gideon really believe God, that God would be with him? God made sure that Gideon and the whole nation of Israel knew who it was that was going to win the battle. You see, after Gideon broke down the the Baal altar and the Asherah pole, he cut it down, he was scared, so he did it at night. And then he built an altar to the Lord. And so when his kinsmen got up the next day, here's Baal's altar just obliterated. Here's the Asherah pole cut down and laying on the ground. It's like, man, I must have really slept well because I didn't hear any of that last night. And then there's this new altar. And on this altar is this bull that's been offered to the Lord. And so the townspeople are up in arms. You just got rid of our two favorite gods of the Amorites And this was the first test of Gideon, but that's just one of many. Because what happened next is God told Gideon to put an army together, and so he blows a trumpet and he calls all Israel together, and there's 32,000. And you think about it, okay, 32,000 against 135,000, it's not great odds, but with, you know, strategic advantage, maybe superior weaponry, we might be able to pull this off. And God said, it's too many. And so Gideon said, okay, Lord. And God said, now, I want you to, anybody who's afraid, <laughs> Gideon's probably thinking, I'm, I'm a little afraid myself. But um, anyway, so he says, anybody who's afraid can go home. And so 22,000 people go home. And Gideon's left with 10,000. And so he's probably thinking, okay, 10,000 to 135,000, those aren't great odds. God says it's still too many. And so he says, I want, I want to test you again. So you guys, you take your army, these 10,000 men, to the river or stream or whatever it was, and I will show you who it is that's going to be with me in my battle. And so they get down there, and apparently there were two types of people. There were, there were these soldiers that actually, I don't know if it was like a running spring or whatever, but they, they stayed upright, they grab water, and they begin to lap it like a dog. But look where their eyes are, okay? And then there's the group that were so thirsty and so, you know, out of it, I guess, they fall on the ground on their hands and knees, and they're, they're drinking the water from the stream. And there were like 9,700 9, of those, and God sent them home. And so Gideon is with 300 warriors, And then the final test is, 
you're not going to take swords. You're going to take a clay, everybody's going to have a clay pot. I don't know where they got 300 clay pots. Everybody's going to have a torch, and everybody's going to have a, a, a trumpet in their hand. It was probably like a ram's horn of some kind. So can you imagine being one of the seasoned folks still left going, now wait a minute, Gideon, you want us to fight a battle with no sword, no shield, no spears, no arrows? Yes, and here's your, here's your implements of war. So they get these together, and they go into battle, and before they go and attack, the Lord knows that Gideon needs one more assurance. So he sends Gideon to the camp with his servant, and I would have hated to be the servant, to go with Gideon, 135,000 people camped, and Gideon hears a dream. And one Midianite soldier is telling another one, I had a dream where a, a loaf of barley, you know, simple little loaf, came rolling into our camp and it knocked over a tent. And the, I guess this other Midianite soldier all of a sudden was able to interpret dreams and he goes, this barley loaf can be none other than Gideon and they're going to come and they're going to wipe us out. When Gideon heard that, the Bible says that he worshiped. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And he had the courage to go, and he and the 300 men divided into three companies around the camp. And here's another proof that God was going to do all this because it was at the beginning of the second watch, like midnight, when the group that had already served was coming off duty, and the group that was about to serve was coming on duty, so you had double the people awake. That's when God chose to do this. And so the men divide up, and Gideon has a hundred, and there's two others. And at, at Gideon's call, they break the jars, they raise the torches, they blow the horns, and they stood there. Didn't move a muscle. And all of a sudden, God began to slay their enemies. As a matter of fact, they drew their swords on each other in the pandemonium, and they wiped each other out. And, and there's a story there for us, right? The battle is the Lord's. Sometimes God wants you to get in there and fight. Shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. There are other times when God just wants you to stand and obey and watch Him work. And friends, um, we serve a God who can win a total triumph. They were victorious they won the victory over a formidable foe. A complete victory was won by God, not by people. He did not abandon his people. He fought for his people. He saved his people, and he restored their hope. So friends, I don't know if that excites you, but it excites me to think that we serve a God like that. God hasn't changed. He doesn't change. The same God that fought that battle is the same God that dwells in your life and fights your battles for you. Question is, are you with him? Are you obeying him? But I cannot leave this sermon today. I don't know how much time I have left. Not long. I can't leave this sermon today without making a gospel application here. Because that indeed is the greatest tri triumph, the most total triumph that God has ever won. And so I want to put those, all those points up there today, and I want to walk us through this. Can you see them? We talked about affirmed, tested, victorious, prepared, chosen. 
So let me walk us through this. First of all, God took the initiative. God sent his one and only son. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So God took the initiative, sending his son in this world that was so messed up. You talk about a season of scarcity. And then not only did God take the initiative in sending his son, but in each one of our lives, those of us that know him, he called you unto himself. He chose you. You didn't choose him, he chose you. Not only did he choose you, but then he dealt with your sinful idolatry and your waywardness. And where he dealt with it was on the cross. Friends, when we were enemies of God and we were serving ourselves and the devil and the world and everything else that, that unsaved people do, he went to the cross and he dealt with our sinful idolatry and waywardness. And then when you invited, when you realized that and you realized your moral bankruptcy and you invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, he gave you a new identity. You were adopted into the family of God. You are now who God says you are, not who you once perceived yourself to be. Don't forget that. You are who God says you are. And who does God say we are? We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. You have a new identity. You are God's chosen people. And not only did he choose you, he consecrated you. By his son's death on the cross and your faith in him, you are justified. Your sins are no longer counted against you. God's consecrated us. There's some exchange that takes place where I give my unrighteousness to Christ at the foot of the cross, and he clothes me with his righteousness. I don't get it, but boy, I'm grateful. Not only has he consecrated you, he has empowered you by his Holy Spirit. You are a powerful people, a mighty army that God chooses to use in this broken, sometimes off-the-rails world. But he's empowered you. You are not alone. You don't have to fight your own battle. He has sent you to advance his kingdom in a lost world, and he will test your faith and obedience to his word and his ways. You can count on it. You will be tested. But boy, is he patient with our doubts. He will be patient with you. He will assure you of his love, proving himself faithful again and again and again. And boy, will he fight your battles for you. He will achieve the ultimate victory over sin, death, and the grave. And that's why believers, when we go to a funeral for a loved one or a friend that has gone on to be with Lord, we can say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? You know, where is your sting? Where, is, where O oh, victory, is your grave? It's not there. 
Christ has won the victory. I know I got that wrong, but anyway, you understand where I'm going with that. And then he has given you a hope that is indestructible. Nothing can shake it. Why is that? Because your hope is not in a thing, a job, an idol, a person other than the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus Christ is your hope. And that's why, friends, as a band comes forward to lead us, that's why our hope is indestructible because it's not, it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, if you are struggling today with a season of scarcity, maybe you feel like God's abandoned you. I don't know. Sometimes we don't share those secrets with others in the body of Christ, but the Holy Spirit knows. And my prayer for you is that you will pour yourself into obedience into getting rid of idols in your life through repentance and and changing your ways, and that you will consecrate yourself anew to the Lord, laying your body on the altar and making yourself a living sacrifice. If you do that, you will see God's total triumph in your life and in your circumstances. And so that's my challenge to you. Lean on the indestructible hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you know our hearts. You know, like Gideon, uh, sometimes we don't know who we're dealing with. We forget the God that we're in relationship with, and we forget the identity that we have in him. Lord, would you call your people to repentance? Would you call us to our living hope that we already have in Christ? Would you remind us today that no matter what we're going through, we can depend on the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, would you move in people's hearts today? Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through his word. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior, I invite you to trust him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.